0: Going to be looking at, at a passage in Luke 20 this morning. Um, I just like I'd like just to pray whilst we're passing the buckets round, um, and if you just pray with me, uh, really this morning want to be uh, focusing more and more, as ever we do, just on the centrality of Jesus. And uh, yes. <laughs> and that's a good response. <laughs> Because he's amazing and he brings joy. And we've had a wonderful time in his presence this morning. And I just want to continue in his presence as we look at this passage. And I want just to know him ever more and have him just ever and ever more central in my heart and in my thinking. And so I'm just going to pray that this morning. Just make a conscious decision at this point um, that everything else, you know, you best just to set aside this morning and think actually... I just want to know more about Jesus, and I want to know more of Jesus, and I want more of Jesus in my life this morning. Yeah. Jesus, we just welcome you here. We declare unashamedly our absolute love for you, and you are King of Kings, Lord of Lords. You are our Saviour, our brother, our friend, our lover. King Jesus, we are just so delighted to be in your presence, and to be part of your kingdom. Amen. Good. So, as I said, we're going to be looking at at Luke 20 this morning, but before I actually come on to the passage, just something I want to throw out briefly to consider, because it's going to uh, help our thinking on this this morning and put some of it into context. And it will also help me uh, probably just to put the message across. Just to consider, you don't need to answer out loud, but if I were to ask you, are you religious? How would you answer? No, I'm hearing a lot of no's. (laughs) Good, good. (laughs) Because within a church context, most of us would would say no because we use the word religious in a specific way. Um, Although a lot of people that that don't have a faith would simply use the term religious to mean someone that, that does adhere to a faith or or someone that goes to church, or even just someone that's, that's vaguely spiritual. Uh, and it's important to ensure a, a shared understanding, because you see, as most of you may well be aware, that the Christian understanding of Christianity is that it isn't a religion. Um, and if you're, if you're not familiar with that, or if you're new amongst us this morning, or if you're new to church to be come to be told that, uh, that it's not a religion, bear with me. Um, we would use the term religious to mean rule-following, uh, legalistic, trying to earn your way into God's good books. It's, it's trying to achieve justification by, by human effort, tradition, or, or works. Whereas Christianity is a relationship, as we've said this morning. Um, it's a relationship with God, the Father, through his Son, Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Christianity is, is the opposite of religion. It's the, it's the antidote to religion. Um, because, in actual fact, it, it clears all that rule following just out the door. Because the key truth that we must accept is that all the rule following, all the human effort, all our rituals and laws are never enough to bridge the gap between us and God. And it takes the gift of God, which is the sacrifice of his perfect son Jesus, to make that possible. So are you religious? No. Okay. What if someone on the street asks you, are you religious? Because if you say no, they might think you're an atheist. It's just worthwhile bearing this in mind. <laughs> um, it's important probably to try and just clarify your terms and say what you mean with this. I'll give you an example. Um, uh, I grew up in, in New Ash Green, and uh, as a teenager, I used to go out and play, play football on the rugby field there with some of my mates. Um, I was never any good, but there weren't enough people for them to exclude me from the game, so <laughs> I got to play. <laughs> when there's only five of you, you can't really kick out 20% of the whole, <laughs> whole team. So that worked. Um, but then one day we were challenged to a game by, by some other other kids that we didn't know, and we'd been playing for a little while, and then they, they shouted across to us, hey, What's the score? And I shouted back, 4-2 to us. Um, And they they debated this a little bit. And my my friend Luke shouted across, no, no, that's right, you you can trust him, he's religious. (laughs) And I shouted across to Luke, no, I'm not religious, I have a relationship with God. And Luke looked for a minute and then just turned and went, you can trust him, he's got a relationship with God. (laughs) (laughs) And on we played. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I don't think we did win uh, <laughs> um, Anywho uh, From this point on When I use the term religion I will be using it in, the, in that sense Of the word that is trying to earn righteousness uh, By rule following And legalism um, And just have that in your, in your thoughts As I talk this morning Because you can almost consider this passage As, as Jesus versus religion really um, if we can have Luke 20 up, verse 9 to well, it's 9 to 19. I was originally given 9 to 26, but I, I couldn't fit all of that into one sermon. Um, and this passage come, follows on from a couple of previous episodes where Jesus has, has openly clashed with the religious leaders of the day. At the end of, of chapter 19, we see that Jesus is cleared, clearing the temple. Um, and at the start of chapter 20, uh, the priests and teachers are challenging Jesus' authority and then comes the passage that we're going to look at today. And then at the end of the, the passage in, in 20 to 26, again, the religious leaders are trying to, to catch him out when they tried to trap him with uh, questions about paying taxes. Like I've said, I'm not going to have time to go into that last bit of the, pa- uh, the, um, the passage this morning, but suffice it to say that, uh, yes, Jesus uh, did approve of paying taxes. So sorry to anyone that. that <laughs> finds that a bind <laughs> i'm going to read from uh, luke 20 verse 9 this is the parable of the tenants he went on to tell the people this parable a man planted a vineyard rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time at harvest time he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard but the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed he sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. He sent still a third and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love, because they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, may this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. And the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against him, but they were afraid of the people. And to put this this passage in context, in in first century Israel, there there were large estates in Galilee uh, that were owned by distant landlords. And so this picture would have been a a familiar setting uh, to the people that were hearing it and they would have been able to identify with. Um, however, obviously it goes beyond that it, it's, and they would have very quickly grasped the true meaning of the, the parable and what Jesus was really describing. Um, and they wouldn't have been pleased to hear it actually, because the vineyard rep- represents Israel and you can see a parallel in the servants that are sent to the vineyard, um, the you know, widely considered you know, to have represented prophets that, that God had sent to Israel, but who were never truly heard, as the, never really, the nation never really re-established its true ongoing relationship with God in the way that He intended. You see, this parable draws from the Song of the Vineyard in Isaiah chapter five. So, if we can put that up, this is the one other passage we're going to draw from this morning. And this is a passage that the the people hearing this message would have been familiar with, and this would have underpinned their understanding of what Jesus was saying to them at the time. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a winepress as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruits. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, like briars and thorns, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Like I say, this would have underpinned their, their understanding of the story that he was telling them at the time. And in this song, Israel is, is obviously portrayed as the vineyard that the Lord planted, tended and, and protected it. And it describes them as... As having you know, bearing bad fruit, and in the end, God judging them and allowing the vineyard to be destroyed. Um, and interesting, actually, just as an aside, uh, the means of His judgment is that um, He takes down the protective hedge and wall, and and He doesn't bring rain. And the means of His judgment is actually not so much direct action from Him as much is that He removes His protection and he removes his nourishment. When we talk about God's judgment, um, this often just means actually he'll, he'll leave us alone um, to the fruits of our own actions. Um, and either we say to him, you know, have your way, or, or he says to us, okay, you, you, you have your way. You go that way, and, and the fruits actually just bring destruction. Because only his way brings life. If you if you want to live your way, he will let you. If you want to live without the blessing of God, you won't force that. He wants to. Okay. But he will let people go their own way and he will remove their his protection from them. Uh, in very simple the way to remember it, is sorry, excuse the horrendous pun, but it's your way or your way. Um, There we go. Thanks. Thanks, I'm here all morning. Uh, <laughs> So a vineyard represents Israel in Isaiah 5 and and the Jews of the time would have been familiar with that passage and when we come back to the the Luke 20 parable here it's the tenants of the vineyard that represent the people of Israel and the servants have been rejected, Um, the messages of the prophets ultimately didn't restore Israel to God, it went on deaf ears and then the owner sends his son. Now, whether everyone listening to this this parable at the time would have identified Jesus as talking about himself as the son in that passage, we're not sure. Um, We fortunately see this in, in the light of the revelation that we have of Jesus and recognize that this is him. This is this is the Messiah. He is foretelling his own death and the fact that the people who should be welcoming him are ultimately going to kill him. And I say, the people at the time may or may not have grasped that as they were hearing the parable. But even if not, they would have realized that um, this story tells of the guilt of the tenants. And then we see the judgment of of God worked out. The tenants get the punishment that they deserve and the the vineyard is handed over to others. And it's very clear that from the response of the people listening that they undoubtedly identified themselves uh, as the tenants in the vineyard. Because um, you see, if they were listening to a purely an abstract story at this point, if you're hearing just a, a tale that's, that's about someone else or just a story, you know, the, the tenants have committed theft and murder. And so when, when the, you know, the people at the time, the they had a very natural sense of, of justice, and they would have known that the punishment for those things would have been, would have been death. So if they were hearing that story purely in the abstract and heard, you know, these people, these tenants, they, they committed theft and murder, and so they were punished and they were put to death, they would have gone, yeah, darn straight. They, they got what's coming to them. But in actual fact, their response here, very clearly, they realize, oh, that's us. Because they say, oh, may this never be. And they identified that um, Jesus is speaking out about them and that the end result of Israel not responding to God was that they would no longer be in his presence, and that he would welcome in other people. It says the vineyard was being given over to other people, you know, the Gentiles, actually. And then Jesus goes on to give his knockout blow, and he looks directly at them and he says, then what is the meaning of that which is written? He says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. And, and Jesus is the cornerstone or the capstone. He, he's the key piece. Uh, the rejected stone is now the most important. And Jesus is saying that they've rejected the most important foundation, that the key, key building block about, upon which everything must be built is the one that they've thrown out. He's quoting Psalm 118 here again. Um, they would have been familiar with that. And previously they, they would have applied that that concept of that, you know, the, being the cornerstone, the capstone that everyone had rejected. They, they probably would have applied that to themselves in a complementary way. You know, we're, we're the stone that was rejected by the world, but ultimately we're of ultimate importance. Because um, Israel had been an impressed nation. It had been looked down on. It had been rejected. And so this passage that, despite rejection, you can be the, you know... They could still be the capstone. That would have been a source of comfort to them. They regarded themselves as the ones that made it against all odds, due to God's favor on their nation, like the ultimate underdog story. And then instead, Jesus turns that on its head and he says, actually, no, you're the ones that have rejected that which is most important. You've rejected the Messiah. You've missed the point in the most drastic way possible. And so you can see why I told you they wouldn't have enjoyed this parable. Okay? This seems fairly critical, even fairly harsh to tell. Jesus has described a group of people who have rejected the word of God, they've treated his servants badly, they've killed his son, and rejected what is, what is of utmost importance. And it's a fairly direct parable. And it's aimed at a specific group of people. This is, this is critical. It's, it's bringing a very, a very, you know. I say a harsh truth, a harsh reality to bear. And then we have to ask ourselves, why, why did he tell this story? And in actual fact, he's spoken this against a specific group, but, but who is it? Who was Jesus speaking against? You know, was it against truly just the people of Israel? Was he against the Jews? Is Jesus anti-Semitic even? Which yes, thank you for thank you that some of you realise that that idea is of course completely false. Um, Jesus was not anti-Jewish. For one thing, he was Jewish. Yes, this is important. Um, (laughs) This is a a key 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 truth to bear in mind. Um, Jesus was Jewish. Um, His first disciples were Jewish. The people he called uh, were Jewish. And in actual fact, his love for Israel is proclaimed throughout the gospel. He was not against the people of Israel. They were, they were. God had chosen that people. God loved them. God sent Jesus, not, not to wipe them out, but to provide a way back and to restore them. You know, he goes out first to bring his message throughout Israel with the attitude that the message from there can then spread out and bless the entire world. His heart from it is very evident in, in Luke thirteen he says about Israel, "I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. He, 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 he loved the people of Israel, and he is not speaking against them he 's speaking against the people that have bound them up who 's he really speaking against Verse nineteen tells us it 's the teachers of the law and the chief priests. Jesus is against the religious leaders. He's not primarily against the Jews at all. Um, he is against religion. But why? Why, why, why is he so against religion? As I say, this is a horrible. Why, why has Jesus got this in his crosshairs and he's you know, gunning for it? Because religion it, it is poisonous. And it's oppressive. And it stops people coming to true relationship with the Father. And that's Jesus' heart because it's not that the religious leaders had one way to god and he was just trying to show them a new or alter- show the people a new or alternative one these weren't kind of competing paths to righteousness and jesus is just trying to elbow the others out of the way okay jesus knew that religion prevented people from coming to god and the religious leaders were actually a barrier that was stopping people and jesus was there to knock that down and he broke that barrier Because religion is about self-justification. It tries to make you better in your own eyes or make you appear better to other people. Um, At the end of verse 19, we see that the priests didn't act because they were afraid of the people. Fear of man is very key in the religious spirit, worrying what other people will think of you. Trying to make yourself appear better in the eyes of the world. It leads to pride, to moralistic boasting, um, and it stops people humbling themselves before god religion doesn't give a way to way to god this or the rule following that legalism it just gives a false idea that you can earn your way to him whilst it doesn't actually provide any way for you to be able to do that it, it, it provides all the demands but none of the power to meet them it's enslaving it makes people miserable and it's completely the wrong path and that's why we see jesus persistently clash with the pharisees And that's why we need to be mindful, because we're we're saved by grace. And we need to always, always keep that in the forefront of our mind, that it is the sacrifice of Jesus that saves us, and nothing else. Nothing alongside that. Because we we can still sometimes slip into a religious mindset at times. Um, If your view of your righteousness slips off Jesus and onto your own behavior or your works or your ministry, or your achievements. That's a dangerous place to be. If anything creeps in alongside Jesus as as your source of identity and significance, that will cause you trouble. The religious mindset's always often about about status, trying to think that you can improve your status before God, off your own back. Or it's about you trying to think, actually, what do I need to do to improve my status amongst other people? What's going to boost my image here? What what can I do that's going to make me appear holy, right, but better than the others? It's that competition that you see in religion and rule-keeping. That that phrase, a a holier-than-thou attitude. That's what's toxic there. So the two things that we need to to guard against in terms of religious mindset, so works-orientated righteousness and status, um, seeking, seeking status by recognition from people. And like I said, the key, the key thing is that we must ensure that it is Jesus and Jesus alone. I'm going to keep coming back to this, because this is the key truth. I really want to talk about Jesus. Um, that gives us our righteousness, our status, our significance, and our importance. And like I said, if you start to slip in other things alongside that you're going to get troubles if you start to see the other things that that you have to have or have to do that boost your view of yourself or that you think boost god's view of you even for you know give you some examples so you know you, you, most people will still leave jesus in there but they'll start to put other things alongside so for example i'm important because of jesus uh, and also because i preach God loves me because of Jesus and because I'm servant-hearted. I'm worthy because of Jesus and because I'm honest and kind. No, I'm important because of Jesus. God loves me because of Jesus and I'm worthy because of Jesus. Nothing else. All right? Jesus and something else doesn't work as a way of life. To be righteous, you don't need Jesus and to keep the rules. Just Jesus. And the other things aren't bad. Okay? it's good, good to be honest and kind, good to be servant-hearted, but, but they come second. They flow from our identity in Christ. They don't, they're not what originally defines it. Our transformed lives and, and behavior come from the Holy Spirit who is in us because God saved us, freely and unconditionally. Those weren't asked of you beforehand. That's a gift. Because religion gets this completely backwards. It says, religion says, says, says transform your life to be godly. And then God will come in. You just, can you see how that doesn't work? It asks you to change your life in a way that would require the supernatural action of God, but you've got to do it without Him before you can get to Him. It's backwards. It's it's asking that you, you've got to do it by your own effort in order for Him to accept you. It would be like me saying to me saying to James down here that I've given him a job and that. For him to earn his wages, he has to drive to Scotland. Um, but that he can't have any wages until he's—he can't have any petrol until he's got his wages. So it's setting that impossible task that's out of reach because I haven't given him the power to achieve that. I've given him no petrol. I'm saying, oh yeah, you can buy your petrol once you're there. That doesn't work. Religion—it sets that unachievable bar. And it gives this false idea that we can do it by our own strength. But ultimately, it'll either make you miserable and give up entirely. Or you can become deluded into feeling that you're self-righteous. And you become proud and you become resistant to grace. Like I said, it's that works-orientated righteousness. And religious spirit, like I said, also, also seeks status. That it seeks status amongst people. The fear of man be careful of of seeking roles or activities just to just to boost people 's idea of you, he says, standing on a stage <laughs> <laughs> but, but it 's something that I always have to keep in my mind in fact, and consider this within a church context. How do you primarily consider yourself or define define your your role within the family here at the church okay. So I asked myself, if I, if I didn't preach, if I wasn't a director, if I didn't do youth work, would that still be enough? Would I still consider myself important in this family? And I'd hope so, because my importance comes from Jesus, nothing else. I do, the, I do these things and, and, and out of my, as part of my worship, and I'm not downplaying these things. I, I, I do these things and I feel blessed by doing them and I feel they're one of the ways that I do relate to God but they're not, that's not my prime role there. My prime role is actually to love Jesus, to be a worshipper. So if you come, never come here going, oh, I'm here just, just to worship. What do you mean you're here just to worship? You're here just to be in the presence of the eternal God who loves you. There isn't a better job than that. <laughs> it doesn't get better than that. That's what we come here for. That's what we come here to enjoy. And if you find yourself thinking, if only someone would would recognize my gifting, please, please just ask yourself, why is that important to me? And just be cautious on that. Listen to, to my, my dad's sermon on, on selfish ambition as well, just to put that in further context. Uh, for anyone that doesn't know, that's Pete Carter. Um, he's my dad. <laughs> Sorry, I realize not everyone might place us together there. Um, so just be cautious around that. Your, your status and your importance... You don't need to do any of those things to give you status because you already have status. You are in Christ. There is no higher status than that. Because Jesus came to say, you don't need to do any of these things to be important. You don't need to behave better than other people. You don't need to be a better speaker. You don't need to be gifted. You are all in Christ. You are all seated in the heavens this morning. Okay. You are raised with Christ. you are given the glorious status of adopted sons and daughters of the king, and you need nothing else. thanks yes that is good news and th- this is the best news because Jesus came to offer that that radically different way he didn 't want people bound up by any of that. he wanted them to be free He wants you to be free. That's why he's so against religion, not not because he was jealous of the Pharisees or anything like that, is that he saw that. That comes between the people that I love and a glorious relationship with their loving father. And he came to break that. And on the cross, he broke that forever. And he provided the way. And he is the only way. And he's not a religion. He's a person. And that's what we enjoy. We enjoy that amazing relationship with Jesus. I say, he's not a religion. I'm just going to read one quote about that. It's from a Tim Keller book, and I know that I always quote Tim Keller, but here he's quoting someone else, so I'm going to say that's okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, it's a story for him. It says, the renowned British minister, Dick Lucas, once preached a sermon in which he recounted an imaginary conversation between an early Christian and his neighbor in Rome. Ah, the Roman neighbor says, I hear you are religious. Great, religion is a good thing. Where is your temple or holy place? We don't have a temple, replies the Christian. Jesus is our temple. No temple, but where do your priests work and do their rituals? Well, we don't have priests to mediate the presence of God, replies the Christian. Jesus is our priest. No priests, but where do you offer your sacrifices to acquire the favor of your God? We don't need a sacrifice, replies the Christian. Jesus is our sacrifice. What kind of religion is this? <laughs> says the Roman neighbor. And the answer is it's no religion at all. It, yeah. It's Jesus. He is the capstone. He is the foundation. He has said here very clearly. I am all... As he says... I am of ultimate importance. I am the center. Build on me and your life will be secure. It will be as it's designed. Um, Martin Steele, who's an architect, will will tell you very clearly, if if you try and build on something other than the foundations, it probably doesn't work very well from from my limited experience of building an architecture. Um, And this isn't necessarily a self-statement from Jesus other than, yes, he does desire our worship because he's worthy of that but that's because he knows this is how we were designed you were designed with jesus right at the center of your life as the key foundation that's how best that's how you were created to be in an ongoing loving eternal relationship with him and he wants all of you knowing that that he is the only way that you will know his love his fulfillment and life to the full and, He's not a harsh taskmaster. He doesn't put all these rules and regulations on us like religion does. He's a loving saviour and we were designed for him to be central. He's where our identity comes from, our, our our, our sense of worth. He's the source of our salvation. He's the only means of our redemption. All our significance comes from being found in him. We rejoice because we know him and his love is our security. If you're here this morning and you don't don't know him, he loves he would love to know you. For you to come into his presence, for him just to shower his love on you, and for him to just welcome you into his loving family. And in some ways, it costs you absolutely nothing. I say there's no rules that you have to follow. It's not based on regulation or rituals. It's not religious. You don't need to try. You just need to receive his forgiveness, his grace, and his love, and he will delight in you for eternity. In another way, though, this is important, it costs you everything. okay? Because Jesus says, I want to be the cornerstone. It doesn't work unless you put me absolutely at the center. Unless it's all built on me, it doesn't work. He needs to be at the center of your life, but it's worth it. And, And... I know that here as family, know that. we know that this morning, don't we? Okay, We would give up absolutely everything, and many of you have given up you know, huge amounts, because in fact the joy of knowing Christ and the joy of his love surpasses anything else that we would ever leave behind. And that's how God intended us to live. And so for those of us that do have the joy of knowing him, um, we need to constantly remind ourselves that our righteousness comes from him and him alone and that we need nothing else and that just purely... So I'm going I'm to finish up in a minute. Can we start getting a band? Are you here? I hope you're still here. Would you guys start coming back up? Because I want us to finish this. I'm going to talk for about another minute maybe two. I want us to finish this morning as we've, as we've started this morning just in absolute adoration... Of Jesus, I know this, uh, this will sound i 'm going to finish by with a very obvious statement that Christianity really is all about Jesus, but sometimes you just need to be reminded that it is that simple and nothing else and be cautious of allowing any religious mindset to slip, to slip in, avoid thinking that you need anything else to make you right before God, and avoid um, avoid anything else that you think needs to give you status before men. You don't need it. Okay. We need to constantly remind ourselves: it's Jesus. Um, he is the cornerstone. He is the capstone. He is the centre, and we love him with a deep, burning love. But even that will never burn, match the love that he's demonstrated for us, because he's the Son that came, in the vineyard that, that died, died so that we could go free. All the punishment was on him, and he makes us righteous. He makes us right before him. So let's set him absolutely central. Just in our eyes this morning, in our hearts, please would you stand, or however you are comfortable worshipping. I'm just going to pass over. Just If you are here this morning and you don't know him and you want to, come and find myself, or some of these guys at the front here, or if you just want to know a bit more, we've got welcome table at the back. We'd love to chat to you. Bob's there at welcome. We love Bob as well. (laughs) Um, For the rest of us, set it in hearts, just for the next few minutes, just remind ourselves and we focus that uh, everything else fades into insignificance and you are given endless worth by the amazing gift of Jesus. Thanks.